Welcome to episode 209 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg. We are joined on this week's show by special guest John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated, 60 Minutes, and Tennis Channel, who have produced with him a documentary based on his book Strokes of Genius about the 2008 Federer-Nadal-Wimbledon final, which, as I'm sure you know, is considered by many one of the best matches of all time. Normally, a look back at a match from 10 years ago would feel exclusively like a nostalgia project, but with Federer and Nadal poised to be the top two seeds at Wimbledon yet again in 2018, the documentary feels incredibly relevant and perhaps even more impressively manages to not be cliched when talking about a topic and a match which has been so thoroughly chewed over in the past in tennis. It's, it's a really successful documentary. I got an advanced copy, thoroughly enjoyed it, and really encourage all of you to watch or DVR it when it comes out in the U.S. and the U.K. on July 1st, which is the eve of Wimbledon. Uh, talked to John about a lot, some of the making of the documentary, how it came to be, and issues presented by the match, including what makes an epic and what makes an all-time classic and the role of best of five in that, and so on and so forth. And I hope you enjoy. Very delighted to be joined here by John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated and 60 Minutes and of Strokes of Genius, which has now gone from page to screen at um, John, let's start off first. Where can people see this feature? It's going to be at BBC, I believe, on Sunday. I'm over. I'm already on an, over here in England, and I know people are already talking about it here. How about stateside? It will. Uh, it will be on BBC and Tennis Channel on the eve of Wimbledon, July 1st, and then I'm hoping and hoping I'm not speaking out of turn by saying uh, it will be available on demand. SVOD, iTunes. Uh, People who don't get Tennis Channel and BBC, I'd like to think they're, in this media age, there ought to be a way to uh, still still watch this. For sure. And I'm sure people will find a way, and yeah, legal, preferably. <laughs> so obviously you wrote this book, Strokes of Genius, about the 2008 Wimbledon final between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Uh, what, what made you, as you were, I'm sure you weren't planning on writing that book about, a book about that match before the match started, I'm guessing. What made that match stand out to you? Because you hadn't previously... I'm sure people can probably guess, hadn't previously written any book about one single match or inspired primarily by one single match before. Um, no, it's, it's a funny story. I, I had a book. Uh, I was approached by a publisher. I had a book deal to write a Roger Federer book, and mm-hmm. um, it was not an as-told-to or anything like that, but that the Federer camp was very gracious and sort of said, listen, we're not going to get in your way. Um, and then he goes and he remember 2008 he loses in Australia to Djokovic. Yeah. So that's that's kind of disappointing. I mean, I, to the back of your mind, you think you're going to chronicle one of these great years in tennis history and maybe even win the Grand Slam. Uh, loses the French Open, just gets crushed by Nadal. And I'm thinking, boy, this this book is going to uh, we're we're really going to have to figure out a creative way to tell the story because this isn't the Roger Federer that uh, the publisher was signing up to uh, to see glorified. He loses the first two sets of that final, and I'm thinking, well, boy, this book project is uh, <laughs> gasping for breath here. And then we get this, you know, tremendous match that's everything you want in a sporting event. And I'm a big, big John McPhee fan, and, and recall how oh, yeah. he had used uh, the. I mean, I, you know, I'm very open about uh, this is 
der- derivative from levels of the game, which which I think is one of my all time favorite books. And mine too. Yeah. Um, the uh, so I, I thought that was just such a clever way to, to tell a story, and then we had this tremendous five set Federer Nadal encapsulation of rivalry, gloaming darkness. I mean, sort of had everything. It was the sim- cinematic uh, Wimbledon final, and I came away with that thinking, I think there might be a way to salvage this thing after all. And, you know, by then, too, it was pretty clear that Nadal had gone very quickly from, uh, you know, I, I think even at that point, I think Nadal, if my math is right, I think he just turned 22. And even then, I think it was pretty clear he was this generational. I mean, this, this was a absolute titan of the game, even at that age. So I think, you know, Nadal obviously didn't have the, the Grand Slam Hall Federer hat or anything like that. But I, I thought it was a pretty good bet that sort of yoking these guys together, uh, it, it was not going to be, you know, we're, we're, we weren't talking about a one-slam wonder here. So there were elements of rivalry and, uh, again, a, lo- a lot about that match, a lot about Wimbledon. I did not expect that 10 years in the future uh, these yeah. guys would still be 1-2 in the world, but uh, it, it all worked out. We'll get to that because, I mean, it, on, in, in theory, a 10-year anniversary look back at a Wimbledon final should be a nostalgia project almost exclusively, <laughs> yeah, but but exactly. now it's still about the top. The guys will be the top two seeds in the draw when it's made later this week. Uh, so, okay, so you get the, the book done, and what, at what point did it occur to you or were you approached about possibly putting this into a different medium onto, onto screen? And I guess also in documentary form. And I guess in theory, you could have gone the Borg-McEnroe Jim, uh, recent Battle of Sexes movie routes and gotten actors to play them but but how how did the yeah but how did the documentary uh first get legs and when um yeah it's a good question i you know i've had a bunch of projects get um optioned and sort of they've gone in various directions and Mm -hmm. invariably these things never quite there's a splashy press release and then uh invariably they sort of peter out and this was much different this was sort of tennis channel saying hey what are we going to do? It's the 10 year anniversary of Federer Nadal. We should do a big project on these two guys. And somebody saying, Hey, we have, uh, you know, did, didn't worth, I'm write that book. And things sort of got momentum uh, and picked up traction fairly quickly. A production company got involved. Um, you know, we were able to get interviews with both Federer Nadal and it, it all came together pretty fast. I mean, we obviously had a, a ticking time clock, which was get this done by Wimbledon 2018. Um, so in, in a way that was a great, that was a great motivator, but it all came together pretty quickly. I think, I think sort of, we agreed to do this, uh, at the U S open, uh, 2017. So this, this was all done in less than a year and people, I, I just, I don't know, John Green, who, uh, did fault in our stars and is, is mm-hmm. a very popular writer. And he, he was joking. They're, they're finally going to do uh, a series on a book of his that was, it was optioned 14 years ago. So uh, to have sort of made this agreement at the U.S. Open and have it air on July 1st is uh, is, is record time. No, I mean, it's you certainly see that even just my very limited knowledge of this world with like the I, Tanya movie. I mean, I'm not sure when it's actually licensed to that, but the fact that the Tanya Harding movie doesn't get made until 2017, you know, when it was in 1994. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It shows right. how these things can lag. So the movie... Um, because what was your role in it then? Which I think, I'll say this at the beginning, but I think it was an incredible success how you all put this together and uh, got everyone's voices involved. But what was your sort of role behind the scenes in the actual production of it? Or is it just sort of your adapted screenplay? 
for lack of a better term. Um, no, it was, it was really sort of this collaborative. I mean, it, it was funny because writing a book, you just kind of go into a cave and mm-hmm. you try and make hay of your notes and try to include verbs in most sentences and come come out of the cave and hope you've got a book. This was much more collaborative and hands-on. I think my, my title, I think, is you know, executive producer. But um, no, we all, we all were. It was a small team. We all worked together and sort of sometimes I did some of the interviews. I did, you know, we tried to figure out the structure. There were a lot of different cuts and a lot of different um, a lot of different versions of this that we all weighed in on. I mean, Ken Solomon, the head of Tennis Channel, was a driving force, but we also had this terrific outside production company. Uh, Wimbledon was great. It's actually was sort of, I, I got to say, there's, there's probably a think piece later to be written about how for as fractured and balkanized as tennis is, this was an occasion where everybody uh, stepped up. Yeah. And John McEnroe, terrific. Uh, candidly, John McEnroe was not paid a dime, but he hmm. thought it was worth his time. And Martine and Chrissy were great. And Federer and Nadal are here. They're in the throes of this rivalry. I mean, this isn't two guys with this retrospective look back and they're, you know, 65 years old and sitting on the couch. I mean, these, these guys are right in the throes of this rivalry, one, two in the world. And they still, A, took time and B, sort of were sufficiently comfortable and letting themselves be a little bit vulnerable and spoke about this match. Nadal was terrific. The interview, uh, unfortunately I couldn't, I had a conflict and couldn't do the interview, unfortunately, but, um, we made the decision at some point to, to try this in Spanish. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, you, you, you know what I, you know, you know, as well as anyone, his, his English is quite good and he's, comes across very well and is, is certainly likable when he speaks English. But I think doing this interview in Spanish was really smart. And I don't, I don't know if you had the same impression I did, but this was just kind of a, a level of comfort and, um, you know, honestly, a, a level of depth that I'm, I'm not sure we always get in press conferences that are, that are in English. I think it really um, enabled him to open up a little bit to do this with subtitles. And you know, and, and Roger was Roger. I mean, again, think, think of your Roger Federer here. You're, you know, this guy is still your chief rival. He's about to win the French Open. You're talking about a match that may well have represented, uh, you know, the most devastating loss of your career. And you speak as openly as, as he did. Um, yeah. It's I, I'm, you know, as you're in this game uh, as much as anyone, and there are a lot of frustrations in tennis, and there are a lot of sport that can't get out of its way, and the Tower of Babel, and this was one occasion from the All England Club licensing footage to people who just heard about this project and unsolicited had ideas for, for moments that uh, might be worth uh, revisiting. It, it really was nice to see this was very much sort of a a, a tennis love letter, but also uh, this was kind of the, the best of tennis. No, and the, you mentioned the right stuff, and I think I heard your episode you did on your podcast with Glenn Greenwald when he's doing this uh, Martina documentary still early in production I think and just sort of warning him almost about the the rights landscape but you got I think footage from all four slams and and then some in there which couldn't have been the easiest thing to do yeah some of this was tennis channel had rights as part of their uh you know, mm-hmm. as, as part of their deals, but some of this was, you know, the the All England Club was incredibly generous with uh, with footage, and yeah, I mean, sports footage. If you look at a thirty for thirty budget, um, sports footage, especially for big global sporting events like a Wimbledon final, it's 
incredibly expensive. And uh, sort of we were there were there were deals deals that were made and relationships that were leveraged. And uh, in in the end, it, it really worked out nicely. You mentioned Federer and Federer. I think you obviously know this. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think the 2008 final was the first time that Federer appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated in defeat, and he. What, what do you what do you what do you sense is his relationship to this match since then? Because because it, it, it's almost like at it, it, some points in the storytelling of this, it's almost easy to. And this is facetious, obviously, but imagine him as sort of a rich man's Aaron Crickstein, you know, who who has oh, in the one, sense of uh... having this one defining match is the defeat, uh, and as much as they did in the rest of their career, it comes back to that when you really try to think of their most memorable moment. Man, you, you think that you think I, that sounds a little like uh, Aaron Christie? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, I suppose there's a certain level of irony that the, the greatest player ever might be associated with uh, the, the losing end of a match like that. I mean, I think that I think one thing that made this easier, but I also think one thing that's really sort of made this heartening is that you know Roger Federer devastating loss this was the third straight major he'd lost here was Nadal coming to his you know, this was his turf war he's winning on clay and you I think there were some real concerns there about boy is Roger Federer he's sort of a, a sensitive guy to begin with um he's, he's has the king been dethroned has he been toppled Roger Federer won the very next major the yeah. 2008 U.S. Open, and he won Wimbledon the next year, and now we're and the French the next and, year too. Yeah. yeah, and and the yeah exactly, and he pulled the double right. Yeah, the uh, the the channel double in 2019. So Roger Federer, after this devastating loss that people were concerned was going to send him on the Bjorn Borg trajectory, you know, Roger Federer is back to winning. Uh, yeah, think about it. I, I guess is it four four straight majors? Could that be right? No, no, no Nadal that? won 2009 Australia. No, no, but whatever. Yeah. So, so Federer wins three of the next four majors, including the, the French Open Wimbledon double right, that right. Uh, hadn't been done before Nadal and, and since Bork. Um, so I, I think that in some level to, to Federer, yes, this was absolutely a stinging loss. Yes, it's too bad that the greatest player of all time uh, in this seminal match was on the losing end. But I think, first of all, I think there's some appreciation that this did not spell the end of his career or anything but. And I also no. think that this match really, and you know, I, he talked about this in the film in one of the, you know, I think was one of the more candid moments. He basically said, it took me a while to warm up to this whole idea of rivalry. Like yeah. it was nice. It was nice being the King. I loved it when I played guys who just said, Hey, Roger was too good today. And here's my runner up trophy. And I think that match may have crystallized to Federer that, listen, this guy's trying to take me down. And it's it's a fight or flight moment, and I think losing that Wimbledon final before that, and it's sort of yeah, it's Rafa wins clay and Roger wins grass, and these two are head and shoulders above the field, and they both can gang up on Djokovic. I think losing that 2008 final may have been one of these hinge point moments where Federer had to say to himself, "Listen, I need to really figure out a way to embrace this rivalry because this guy's coming after me, and I need to uh, sort of reassess my relationship with him." Yeah, no, and that was the one quote I wrote down, actually, when I was watching it in my notes. Is he said he had to embrace the idea of a rival, is what he said. And just, yeah, Federer, it had been great being Federer, having everything come relatively right. easy, winning three slams a year pretty routinely in 2004, 06, 07, did that all this time. Flashing forward, well forward to now, but also in, even in the short run, Federer did more or less recover from this. So I guess, how do you, which is different maybe than people the way people talk about 
McEnroe showing up and kind of knocking Borg out of the sport ultimately. It, it, that's one way to look at it. Um, did this did this match? Do you think it was it a, a turning point in the directory of the sport? I mean, obviously it announced in it all as a Grand Slam champion on more than just clay, but clay has remained his base relatively still. I don't know. I don't know. Do you think there was a dramatic shift in in the timelines of the sport that happened in this match, or is it just a, a great match that was part of a larger trend of different things? That's a that's a really good it's a good question because I think I think the the irony is that the longer these two guys play and win, the less of a seminal moment this is in terms of this this great high watermark for tennis. Mm. Uh, if these guys were retiring at ages you know twenty eight twenty nine thirty like they would have a generation ago, I think this match is is seen a little differently. But um, no, I think this this was one of those matches that my friends who can't tell Venus from Serena, remember. This was a sort of sporting event, and tennis doesn't necessarily have many of these, that um, that really broke through, and it was a Sunday, and it was, I think it was Fourth of July weekend, and the the rain delay, ironically, worked for the benefit of American TV. Yeah. Um, here was this rivalry, it was right before dark, it was Wimbledon, it was, I mean, sort of every single element is there. There was no real controversy there's there's a great moment and and i don't know if this honestly got into the very final cut of the film but there's this moment where they both give their gracious you know i i want to congratulate roff and his team and and i want to congratulate roger and there's this moment where they both orbit the court federer Mm. with his runner-up trophy which he's never held before and nadal with his winner's trophy that he's never held before and there's a spontaneous moment where they're going in opposite directions doing this victory lap, which was sort of this impromptu acknowledgement that this was really a special match. Again, Roger Federer, your five-time champion, he's doing a lap of the court with a runner-up trophy. And there's a moment, and they pass each other, and they give each other this kind of low five, and they keep walking. And I'm thinking, God, if, if I'm a casual fan in any way, or a sports fan in general, how are you not seduced by this day, this match, this rivalry, these two guys... I think a lot of their, you know, people that cover the sport, like like you and I do, it, it's almost an article of faith. These are just good dudes. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really on display in, in large ways, but also in small ways for casual sports fans that day. I mean, if you're, if you're watching this and you see these two guys play for whatever it was, six-plus hours and 9-7 in the fifth and Wimbledon and number one ranking changes hands, and they're giving each other a you know, high five as they circle the court afterwards yeah um that's that's pretty extraordinary no and the other the other thing on that which i wish i hadn't seen footage from this match in, in a while and i guess any matches from wimbledon in that sort of era because it's changed in recent years but also having the boxes sit together having when when nadal goes in you know when he wins and he goes up to climbs into the box to give uncle tony yeah. a hug and severin luthi is like right there next to them as they're embracing and you know, uh, Robert whole, Federer, Robert yeah. Federer offering to like hoist up the guy who just dethroned his sale. Roger Federer, there's a scene where you can see Roger is like sitting slumped on his chair. Yeah. And his dad is pounding his fist together for Nadal. Yeah. It's really it's sort of hardening. But, but you're right. I, I always say this, but uh you know, in, in youth sports, you never sit with the parents on the other team. Um and here we are in a Wimbledon final and the two families are sitting in back-to-back rows and yeah. one of them is hands are in their head and Mirka's right behind you know Benito and 
<laughs> everyone has to be on their best behavior. I mean, there's a real civility. I think I think actually now the uh, they've the split two it up players' now. boxes are yeah, but still it's um, but that the other thing too that goes with that is this rain delay comes. You're in the fifth set, Wimbledon final, this top match, and Federer and Nadal are both going to the same locker room. No. Um, so uh, no, I, I thought uh, that that day. Sort of everything we love about tennis was uh, was on display. Do you think that you, you talked about all the factors that went right for this match, Fourth of July rain delays, and I think one of the other things that this match had going for it, which Borg McEnroe I think also had going for it, was a lot of anticipation beforehand, and there were high expectations that were then met, and it just got me wondering: is it possible that at 2018 Wimbledon there will be a greatest match of all time candidate, or is it? almost already fair to say that there just aren't sufficient, you know, groundwork in place. And the only one I could think of would be Federer and Nadal, possibly, again. I was, was going to say, don't you yeah. think, uh, I mean, I think, you That's know, the probably one. a larger, right. I mean, you, you could have the most incredible match of, you know, in, in, in tennis history, but if it's on a Tuesday night in Memphis, then I'm picking a defunct tournament. But, right. you know, I mean, I think for, for a greatest match, you sort of have to have a grand stage like that. And I also think you have to have two players where you have these relatively symmetrical stakes. Yeah. But no, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, it was, it was one versus two. Those two had played the previous two Wimbledon finals. It was lefty, it was righty. Nadal just crushed Federer at the French Open four Sundays previously. Like, yeah. everything sort of, everything lined up. And then the match that already came with considerable expectation somehow exceeded that expectation. Which is, I think, different than the one that came the year after, which was Federer Roddick in 09, which arguably was a more dramatic match in terms of the final set, at least, when I think 16 14 in the fifth before Federer closed right, it out. Right, and right. But there hadn't been, because Roddick had not competed all that. Well, he won one set, I think, into the 2005 final against Federer. But it, that rivalry was pretty clearly established who was dominant. And there wasn't necessarily a great amount of. Uh, anticipation for that final compared to Federer at all. Yeah, I mean, there was there was an irony that we, uh, some, some of us took the step of using a superlative in a book title, but there, there was a certain irony that we had this amazing Wimbledon final, and then a year later, we're going 16-14 in the fifth again. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think this year, listen, I mean, Federer and Nadal, they're, what is, what, is, what is their combined age is pushing 70, and they've won <laughs> the last six majors, and they're one and two, and every... Every week, the ranking seems to sort of travel back and forth. Mm-hmm. But if um, if Federer and I don't know, pick a name. If Federer and Chilich rematch and it goes nine seven in the fifth, could this be a greatest match of all time? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm perhaps perhaps not. Yeah. One one other thing that um, gets talked about in the or one other thing that gets the, the context in which I hear about this match most still is when people are defending the best of five format. Anytime I say anything at all negative or questioning the, the prudence of best of five being played at Grand Slams or at Davis Cup, inevitably people immediately bring up the Federer and all match and say, if that if this format was, if this was best of three, we wouldn't have this great match. And it got me wondering also with Borg McEnroe being there and with, I guess, even mentioning Federer erotic, do you think that this is only possible, this kind of epic greatest of all time match in best of five matches, which in tennis then means only in men's matches. Because I don't know that there really is a women's match that has held on to this kind of mythology ever. And yeah, whether that's for better I, or worse, I don't, I don't know. I, and that could just be 
other sexism or other valuations of the sport of the you know the relative games but that's something that struck me too and i and i heard another reporter say during the french open um was talking about the graf hingis 1999 french open final which was wild but he said he said right, something right. in passing that it, he said it couldn't be an epic because it was a best of three match which i just sort of found preposterous because then that rules out all women's matches ever from being epics but, yeah, I was going to say, what, what we're saying is uh, we're automatically forfeiting the chance. Yeah, I mean, so we're precluded from having every, a That match had everything. I mean, that was, match was, right. you know, and sort of talk about having future effects. That match derailed Hingis's entire career. So, right. um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you think, what you think of the, the length of the match in terms of a, in terms of a necessary ingredient for memorability or, or classic status and how, how that should impact. And I, and, and even as someone who pushes for, less best of five in tennis the Wimbledon final is obviously the last place I would ever say to to abbreviate the game right um no I mean it it certainly helps I mean you we talk about swings of momentum and we talk about uh you know more more data points I I think it certainly helps to if we're talking about building a classic uh the the longer the better Mm -hmm. um my solution is just first week of majors best of three keep them the second week so you have have matches like this i I think it probably helps from uh you know to you you play best of three sets and nadal obviously wins that match in straights and we're not having this conversation um i think i think it's possible to have a classic best of three i think it's more difficult and i think that um you know with something women's tennis is always going to have to fill well yeah i Venus and uh, Davenport. Lindsay Davenport was a tremendous match, but what would happen if they they only played half as much as the men? Um, I, you know, it's. But I think it's, I think it's easier to have uh, when when someone can come back from two sets to love. And again, it's just some of it is just more opportunity and more data points. It's probably easier to meet the uh, the, the classic prerequisites and definitions when when you've got. Uh, more opportunity to play with but or the existing I, I framing think, of it anyway because i mean i think yeah, i think for exactly. example like but, australia this year that halep wozniacki match didn't feel anybody didn't leave anybody feeling you know short change i don't think in terms of the right of tennis or drama right. there was in that one um but it's just a question of if it gets remembered or anthologized and in, in quite the same way yeah no it is unfortunate for the for women's matches that you know in women's tennis that this is this is the standard yeah yeah, well, that's great. Great that uh, I don't know what, what was the time on Wozniacki Halep. That was probably it's probably close to three hours. I'm guessing. All right, but yeah, this was this was four forty eight. So. Yeah, and with rain delays too, which also added to the length in in real time watching it and sort of maybe heightened the stakes for people. They've been yeah exactly watching this match for eight hours of their life. It took up a whole Sunday. Uh, right. well, thank you very much, John. Any anything else uh, to add on this on this whole project and this match? before I let you go. And, and and would you like to see, I mean, do you think that these guys still have more classics left in them? It's interesting as much as, I think Wimbledon, is, as much as they are number one and two, I think Wimbledon will only be the second tournament this year where they're both in the draw after Australia. Because they've been, you know, keeping pretty far apart from each other in terms of tournaments. Oh, well, you're talking into, well, yeah, exactly. You all, all tournaments. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we haven't obviously, uh, we haven't had a, a Federer-Nadal clash uh this year, but no, I mean, the, the other thing too is I, I think ironically, I think the best of five format helps these guys. Totally. And, uh, you know, does Federer, does Federer lose to Borna Chorich in a best of five match? 
No. I and he also doesn't lose too much at the, the, at the stakes. Are a lot of, less likely. Yeah, exactly. And the stakes, stakes of a Grand Slam would get to right. Chorich more quickly than the best right. of three Hala match. Yeah. Um, but I, th- I think, uh, no, I, I just, again, this, this t- 10 years ago, if you'd said these guys would be coming to Wimbledon in 2018 as one versus two and winners of the last six majors. Um, I, people would people would laugh and people would smile and I suspect people would say where do I sign up for that so um, this is a extraordinary rivalry last question before I let you go if it was up to you completely non sequitur from everything else we just said but this will be posting <laughs> before that uh, if it's up to you where do you seed Serena pick a number between 1 and 32 or, or not seeded but they're going to announce that uh, in the next 48 hours or so if you're Wimbledon how about, one? How about, how about just going all how about just putting a 1 <laughs> You would do that? That would be your pick? I, I almost would just as a tweak. I don't, I don't think it's particularly likely, but almost as a tweak and almost as a, you know what, tra- track record here matters. We're going to make it the top seed. That's, they did it in 04. Yeah, they bumped yeah, up to number exactly. one. Yeah. Right. And just said that, that's before there was a formula and it was just subjective, right? Yeah, there's no formula for the women now. Women, right. Women's still subjective. So uh, I would just. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't have a ton of uh, – that, that was some, – someone said that to me in the, the French Open as well. Well, what about – I think it was Boozner Rescue was 32. Mm-hmm. said, you know what? It's Serena Williams we're talking about here. Um, it'll be interesting to uh, see how this goes. I also yeah. – I mean, you, you have more information than I do. I'm still not sure I understand the U.S. Open policy. Um, but I did think it was interesting that before Wimbledon had acted – Yeah, uh, they wanted the, to get another, that out there. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's, there's there's your balkanized tennis for you. Before <laughs> Wimbledon has made his decision, the U.S. Open's already weighing in. So, um, if Serena were seated number one, it would not uh, bother me in the least. There you go. I, I'll say I'll say number nine. Give her a nice top ten seed. Nothing. No, let, real, let realistically, between yeah. between. I mean, if, I mean, I was I was half being facetious, but half right. pointing out Serena Williams deserves some special dispensation. But no, I mean seriously, I I think between nine and sixteen is where it's going to be, right? I would I would. I would think so. I, I think that nine to twelve range is, is great. You yeah, have to exactly. play a, a top four exactly. player in the in the first four rounds and somewhere right. there. Yeah. Anyway, ah, think, tennis. <laughs> tennis always manages to have dumb ar- arcana to keep it interesting for us <laughs> exactly. at every turn. Thank you very much, John, uh, for joining us and congratulations on the success of this documentary. And hope everybody checks it out. Thanks very much. Uh, that was fun. Pleasure. Thank you very much to John for coming on the show, and we hope you all do watch Strokes of Genius. Going to wrap up this episode with a quick chat I did here at Roehampton, where there is Wimbledon qualifying held as every year off-site at the Bank of England Club here in Roehampton, uh, with an interview I did with Ernest Golbus after he won his second-round match, and I caught him on a nearby field cooling down by jogging without his shoes on, which was an odd look. Do you always run without shoes? I've never seen anybody take off their shoes to, to run before. Really? I think, I mean, maybe I'm just not looking enough, but it seems unusual when you get your socks yeah, we'll dirty now. Ah, but yeah, okay, socks is, is it's not a good idea. Really. <laughs> no, but I like to run without shoes. Yeah. There are actually a couple exercises which uh, you can do before the tournament, before, before grass. I mean, it's only about moving on grass. So if you imagine that you're like on ice, you know, so you have to move like this, and if you take off your shoes, you're even more uncomfortable the first day. Mm. So if you try to do it, so you do like full practices on grass without your sh- shoes. I did. Uh, I did some fitness practices without shoes, mm. not tennis. Okay. How are you like in Roehampton? I don't like it. 
No. You probably, maybe you heard what I <laughs> yesterday I was giving. Oh, yeah. bit. The Wimbledon website asked me for uh, for an interview, and I think they cannot use any material which <laughs> I said. <laughs> okay, what, what what did you say? I, did, I didn't hear what you said. So nothing special that uh, that uh, in qualifying. I mean, you know how it is. They treat players day and night. You know, if you compare main draw and qualifying, it's like day and night. It's, it's here you in in the practice courts. You don't even get towel uh, for for practice here. In, in in this club, there is only hot water in the shower. There is no cold water, so you walk in, you turn on the the pipe, and it's just coming boiling, boiling hot water. Huh. Yesterday, at least, and I don't think that they can uh, fix it there. Practice both, you get only 10 minutes before uh, uh, before practice, and then they make it uh, a session 9:45 to 10:15, and then they bring everybody is not uh, able to get practice both 10 minutes, uh, uh, only 10 minutes uh, before the practice. So there is a queue. Of like 30, 40 players, everybody is waiting 10 minutes before the practice. If you allow it half an hour before, there is no queue. Yeah. Some things, you know, which are just—it's uh, small things, yeah. you know. And that's weird. I don't know why they would care how early you get your balls for practice. It's a lot of things weird here. A lot of things. I mean, qualifying is not a tournament for them, and I understand that they have to do it in Rockhampton because they have to save the grass. This is this is understandable. It's difficult for them. It's much more difficult for them than the than the other um, tournaments. But but. Uh, yeah, it's still, still tough. You, you think it could be better? I guess is what you're saying. I mean, even if it is, it can't be at the same place because of the saving the grass, which yeah makes sense. But again, I'm not. But they, they do make it clear here that you're not part of the main show. I guess, and they make it very. It's it's, it's, <laughs> it's very clear. It's very obvious. It's very yeah, clear, that's what yes. I heard from other players too. It's they, very they, clear with yeah. that with with the attitude uh, from the from the staff as well. I mean, it's it's again, it's like you personally encounter. Maybe it's like a bad day of somebody, but. Uh, I, I encountered some bad days of, of, of somebody. How about, uh, does that make it tougher to focus here in terms of, because you're still playing Wimbledon. Even it doesn't feel anything like Wimbledon. This is still technically your Wimbledon result could yeah, be decided here. Yeah, you know, when, when you're on court, you just want to win. It doesn't matter where it is. And uh, I think that probably, probably it is easier to, to concentrate, not even to concentrate, but to maybe somehow push yourself motivate yourself more on the on the uh, on the main draw and on the main did you win well done uh, on the main event then in qualifying but yeah qualifying is part of the it's part of the game you know I mean but just uh, if it's so if it's such a drastic uh, difference in organization between qualifying and main draw don't make qualifying then if you don't want it hmm. you know just make main draw and that's it and end of story but if you make qualifying make it on a uh, on the best level what you can. How are you feeling about your game since in the last few weeks since Paris? Where you played pretty well in Paris, so. I played well in Paris. I even played well the uh, the challengers afterwards. I just uh, couldn't get my uh, head straight. I was a little bit mentally tired after Paris and physically also. And then I went to play again challengers. And it's, you know, it's uh, I'm already yeah. When you're 18, it's it's a different story when you play challengers. You know, when you're 29, it's it's uh, so. But I have to get through this. Now it's uh, I'm in a good position because I can play all the ATP events until US Open, including uh, mm. everywhere I get in in qualies. So for me, it's just the most important thing to get in qualies. Game-wise, it's fine. Physically, I feel good. Game-wise, it's okay, you know. So it's just yeah. If I'm lucky, maybe here and there, maybe I can I can go far in some some events. And you just need one big result, pretty much, with all you need yes, to push yes, up. Yes, 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 yes. To 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 be in top hundred. When you're in top hundred, it's much easier. Yeah. When you're yeah. Thanks. Thanks very much. Sorry.
If two men are playing tennis Well, I don't care much at all Unless their names are Federer and Nadal Every other tennis player They just kind of blend in until they face Raph or Roger And of course we all know who'll win But when they face one another When they meet head to head That's when I finally Become interested